This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke joins us to discuss the police transition U-turn. The Surrey Police Service Union says its members don't want to join the RCMP. Now what? Plus, Transportation Minister Rob Fleming joins us to discuss BC's $1 billion highway rebuild a year after the deadly storms of 2021. Plus, Wakanda forever. We look at one of the biggest movie releases of the year as Black Panther opens tonight. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's get to our top story. The Surrey Police Service Union says the majority of its members have no intention of joining the RCMP if the mayor of Surrey is able to stop the police policing transition. Now, the union says 275 of its 293 frontline officers have signed a pledge saying, quote, if the Surrey Police Service ceases to exist, I have no intention to apply or to join any RCMP detachment as my next career move, end quote. Now, union spokesperson Sergeant uh, Darren Shepherd spoke to our Jill Bennett on on her show a few hours ago. Take a listen. We all came from a variety of agencies, including the RCMP, but agencies all across the country, and came to Surrey for a reason, uh, to build something new, to build something different, and to build something better. We thought it was important that um, we get the facts out there about how many people would actually be willing to go over to the RCMP. And as you can see, the results are overwhelmingly uh, that uh, 94% of us do not have any intentions of going to the RCMP. Now, right now, according to Mr. Shepard, 94% of the Surrey police officers who are presently employed uh, signed that particular uh, document pledging out to join the RCMP. Uh, Jill did ask Mr. Shepard, where would transition leave SPS members uh, that have already signed on? Take a listen. There are too many unknowns to say. Uh, right now, we don't believe that the tr- transition will reverse. It's a provincial decision, not a municipal decision. And there has been never any indication at all from the province that initiated this uh, transition or approved the initial request um, that they have any appetite to reverse it. So this was simply um, an, an acknowledgement of what Mayor Locke is putting forth uh, and our simple response to it. Um, individual members would have to make their choice as to where they went or what they did. But the overwhelming results, as you said, uh, 275 out of our 293 sworn uh, police officers have said that they have no intention of joining the RCMP. That is Sergeant Darren Shepard from the Surrey uh, Police Service Union. Joining me now is Brenda Locke, the mayor of Surrey. Uh, Your Worship, welcome. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me, Joe. Well, you've heard uh, some of the comments that uh, Mr. Shepard has made, uh, particularly uh, in the fact that he believes this is a provincial decision, not a decision for the council in Surrey or the police board. What would you say to to, to those comments? Well, I'll tell um, your listener uh, very clearly that the plan to reestablish the Surrey RCMP as the police of jurisdiction in Surrey is moving forward. Uh, We have already started that work. It is well underway. Uh, Staff have and are preparing a report that will be going to the Solicitor General by the end of the month. Uh, I have had conversations with 
both the federal government and the provincial government, including uh, the minister. So uh, we are we are uh, moving forward, and um, and so uh, the public will see a public-based report this Monday, um, and then and that's a preliminary one. And then moving forward by the end of the month, there will be more uh, information for the public and for ultimately. Uh, the Solicitor General. Now, uh, based on uh, what has been said today, this pledge was signed by 275 of 293 frontline officers and says, look, if SPS ceases to exist, they have no intention to apply or join any RCMP detachment as their next career move. Um, What happens if these folks do quit en masse or decide not to transition over to the Surrey RCMP. Is that something you're concerned about or do you just feel that's an individual decision? You move on and and you move on uh, with the transition remaining with Surrey RCMP. Um, well, we will be reestablishing the Surrey RCMP in Surrey. There's just no doubt about that, Jeff. Um, and it will be, you're right, it will be up to individual uh, members of the Surrey Police uh, Union if they choose to uh, come over. They're, uh, they are absolutely welcomed. Uh, but the RCMP have a very good experienced officer program that will uh, let them ladder to to the RCMP. And I think at the end of the day, and I've talked to many, many of the uh, good men and women that are working with the Surrey Police Union, they actually want good public safety in the city of Surrey. That is their primary goal. That is my primary goal. That is everyone's uh, primary goal is to have good policing in this city. And uh, so the Surrey Police uh, Union members uh, have that opportunity to to come over and, and participate with the uh, Surrey RCMP. That preliminary report that you talked about for this Monday, will that provide, um, how do I put this, a realistic cost to the transition? Well... Uh, it won't have all the costs in there. No, it won't. Um, it will. It will establish the uh, framework, so it will give identify some of the issues that we are going to be working to to establish um, our our uh, mandate, if you will, moving forward for the uh, Solicitor General. But um, in the very near future, and I'm hoping within weeks, we'll have the actual numbers. For everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just to clarify here, uh, the uh, sergeant uh, sh- uh, there, uh, Sergeant Darren Shepard, basically said this is a provincial decision. In your mind, this is a municipal decision, and you will be providing guidance to the Solicitor General based on a your thoughts, your views, and what you believe is the sentiment in Surrey, and certainly the, uh, I guess, the outcome of the election, and that is what's driving this transition in your mind. So. I don't know that I would describe it as a municipal decision only. Certainly, the Solicitor General has asked the City of Surrey to give, us, to give him a report, and, and I believe you uh, played his clip as well, uh, to give him a report that outlines two issues. One is the HR issue, the human resource issue. The second one was the costing. That is uh, what we are working on, and that is what we will have to uh, the Solicitor General so that... Uh, we can work together at, by the end of the month when we have all the information in front of him and in front of the uh, Surrey public. I think it's also, though, really important to remember this is not a Brenda Locke decision, and this is an election decision. This is what was the outcome, a very clear outcome 
of the uh, of the 2022 election. So um, I think that it's it's incumbent on on uh, the Surrey Police Union to understand that that this is something that the public have asked for. Mm-hmm. And when do you think we will get a better sense of the true cost of the transition? I know the initial numbers are 19 million, and then it went up to about 60 million over the last couple of years. Uh, will there be, at least be a breakdown on what the cost has been up to date uh, to create, set up, and continue to uh, to fund the SPS up to up to now? Yeah, absolutely. And that is that's exactly what I want to have in front of the public. So everybody knows where we're at. That will be uh, sort of part two of the report, Jeff. So the first part is going to set out the framework, the Mm -hmm. outline of what we're going to be presenting. Part two will be uh, really getting down to the nitty-gritty, the numbers, and how we will um, make sure that that HR plan uh, for the RCMP moving forward uh, will work for the City of Surrey so that we can have the best policing in possible for the taxpayer of this city. Is there a rough estimate as to when that would come out, the cost uh, aspect? It, it will be, be way before the end of the month. So I'm hopeful um, it'll absolutely be public-faced by the 28th of uh, November, but I'm, I'm hopeful we can get it done before that. Your Worship, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. I know you've got a busy day, lots of stuff uh, before you. And once again, thank you so much. And good to see you last night at the Surrey Board of Trade um, uh, Awards. Thanks so Likewise. much. Likewise. Thank you. There's, of course, no doubt you've uh, heard already about the Vancouver uh, Vancouver Police Department's uh, Vancouver Police Department Commission report called Vancouver Social Safety Net Rebuilding the Broken. There's been widespread coverage, and of course, that uh, report essentially says that the public is spending about five billion a year on the city's social safety net, despite hundreds of people dying of overdoses and and there's horrendous conditions, SROs, hotels, tent cities and, of course, rising crime and poverty as well. Well, our next guest uh, was one of the first uh, to actually get through the report uh, a couple of days ago, and he drilled down a little bit, and uh, he saw a lot of holes there. Actually, now see, uh, he was absolutely correct uh, in his car coverage. Joining me now is Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. Hi, Rob. Hey, Jazz. Hi. Uh, I was off yesterday, but I was following this uh, story throughout the day. It was just fascinating to see uh, some of the defense uh, from the VPD and those who wrote the report. When you uh, initially saw it and you read the report, were you actually, I mean, you must have been surprised at how shoddy it was. Yeah, well, I mean, there's two reports, right? There's the one that's a summary by VPD, which is the one that was actually the start of which was leaked. And then there's the kind of data report, which is like 82 pages long or, or whatever. And, you know, the, <laughs> they're both problematic. The police one is problematic because it's sort of, you know, the picture of it is an alley in the downtown east side. It's clearly about the downtown east side, even though the numbers in it, when you start to review them, are, are about all of Vancouver. And, it, you know, there's inferences in there about the the lack of kind of balancing of money spent and money needing to not just go to social services and all of these types of things. So that, that, and it has a bunch of comparisons in there. Like if you were to take this $5 billion social safety net, you could fund the NHL's operating budget for an entire year. You could fund the international space station or um, all these kind of of things, which I thought was so funny in my column. I said, well, if you took the, you know, entire uh, VPD budget, you could, 
actually pay for 300 gold toilets, uh, according to the, the valuation of the Kim Kardashian and Kanye West house. So, like, you can make dumb comparisons uh, all day long if you want. So that's one report. And then the, the data report is problematic uh, for different reasons because you have numbers in it that show that this isn't really about um, the downtown east side. It's a kind of valuation of all the social spending in Vancouver, including old age security and uh, and pension plans and uh, child tax benefits are two of the five billion. So once you get there, you start thinking, uh-oh, these numbers are are, are fatally flawed in, in the way that they're, they're designed. Do you, uh, the tactics may have been horrendous, but do you think there was a greater good there that was missed and the police did the right thing? Or do you think they should have just stayed in their lane? Yeah, I'm, look, I mean, no one asked the police to do this. And I think city council, seems, or a lot of the councillors on city council seem to be quite upset by that. So the police department's going to have to deal with that. Um, I, you know, is there is there a legitimate question buried in here about the amount of money that is spent on the downtown east side and the social services at a time when we have more and more overdose deaths, we have, you know, increasing numbers of tent cities, we have, you know, rising kind of uh, random uh, assaults and that type of thing, and whether that money is being spent properly? Absolutely. 100%. That's, that's a question that has been asked before and should be asked again. And I think that's what the police chief was trying to say. He's like, we see it every day and we know that this isn't working and we need help um, coordinating it. And, but they, they built that off of a report that, that sort of dramatically, dramatically overswung on how it was describing the issue. And I think, you know, that built a, there was no foundation from which to have a conversation when the numbers don't make sense and when it is, uh, you know, the report's starting to calculate the amount of money spent on charities and nonprofits downtown, but it's mistaking the addresses um, of the charities that are located in Vancouver as being focused on Vancouver, when in fact it includes the entire Legal Aid Society, it includes an Aquafit charity, it includes, it includes like a horse therapy charity and you end up with like just numbers that don't make sense there either so 70 percent of that five billion dollar total in my mind doesn't make any sense at all and uh how do you start a conversation about spending when you don't have the right spending um i think that that's sort of how is how everything tilted sideways on vpd yesterday uh we don't we got about 30 seconds left here with david eby whatever happens with this report so be it but david eby looks like it's it's one of his core issues he's got to tackle and deal with if he ever wants to be reelected, I would think, as premier of this province, because it seems to be at this point public safety and crime, uh, mental health and addiction, one of the core issues that uh, this, go- the go- this government has to grapple with. Oh, for sure. And he's, uh, he has said that, uh, I mean, you know, he said on Global last night that he wants to take a lead in this. I mean, that makes a lot of sense that government is putting in a lot of money. The province needs to take a bigger role. But at the same time, is this a solvable problem for Premier Eby when he takes that role? I, I don't know. And there's a, there's a considerable risk in him taking the lead in that if, if it proves unsolvable, um, he's going to wear that uh, politically as well. So, yeah, yeah, we will see. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting once uh, the legisl- legislature reconvenes and he is Premier and what he plans to do about it. Rob, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Okay, take care. 
incredibly entertaining, but it is important because social media plays such a big role in our uh, political and public discourse. Uh, Elon Musk's Twitter came under sudden and unusual fire from the Federal Trade Commission in the United States today after a chaotic 24 hours, which new subscription rules triggered a raft of fake verified accounts and key privacy and security uh, and security executives quitting. Last night's rollout of uh, that new policy in which Twitter users could purchase blue check verifications for $8 a month uncorked a wave of bogus accounts, get this, uh, each bearing a blue verified check. So those folks uh, who paid the $8 were impersonating public figures like Donald Trump, George W. Bush, Rudy Giuliani, Joe Biden. Uh, so lots going on in the last 24 hours, in fact, the last week and a half or so. Joining me now to make sense of it all for us is Andy Brewer, technology and digital lifestyle expert at handyandymedia.com. Hello, Andy. Hi, Jazz. I I thought of you t- this morning as I was reading these stories. I said, I got to give Andy a call so he can h- help us walk through what is this uh, tsunami of just news every day from Twitter and specifically Mr. Musk. What do you make of all of this in the last week or so in regards to what you've been hearing? You know, I'm wondering how Elon Musk sleeps at night because <laughs> he has just caused so much problems at Twitter. And it's only been a week, Jazz. He's had it last <laughs> Friday. The deal went through and it feels like it's been for eternity because of all the news cycle uh, on Twitter. But the, the real big one that struck out for me was the, the exit of some of Twitter's leading executives on their executive team, including the chief information security officer, Twitter's head of sales and their chief compliance officer. These are really, really big roles. Those are important roles, especially when you have the FTC looking very closely at Twitter because they had to settle a $150 million, uh, lawsuit back in May for violating a lot of the terms of their 2011 agreement. So the FTC issued this rare warning that you just mentioned that they're watching closely what's happening at Twitter and he could get some fines and not just small fines, big, big fines from the FTC for rolling out this new verification system for $8. What do you think is his end game? He's a smart guy and and mostly these social media platforms are free. And if you get a, maybe a portion of those folks paying for a specific service, is this his thing where it's not just the blue tick mark, but there may be, you know, maybe he wants to follow the the sort of the um, the um, program people uh, or uh, social media outlets like WeChat, which is a Chinese um, uh, app from out of China that talks about uh, where you can sell, where you can buy. It's got a payment system. It's a little of everything. It's kind of a mix of Facebook and Twitter. Is this his end game? Is to be more like WeChat and some of these other apps that we see in other countries in regards to making money? In terms of the long game, yes. That Those are called super apps. The apps that are apps within apps that pretty much do everything. And this has been a vision of his for a long time. He started, a, a you know, back way back before PayPal, he had this idea of X.com where it would be something like that, where you could just go there for all your transactions. And I think he's never left that idea go. And he feels that Twitter can be the vehicle to do that. But what he's told the employees today, he did... It's crazy. He does not like the culture at Twitter. He told all the employees, you have to come to work. You have 40 hours. And if you can't physically make it into work, he alone will sign off that exception. And he says, if you uh, don't show up to work, he'll consider that a resignation. And he also said that he's hoping to see the subscriptions to account for half of Twitter's revenue. Now, before he took over Twitter, 90% of the revenue came from ad sales. And we already know that advertisers are holding off 
because they're just watching this train wreck happen. And when your chief, uh, your head of ad sales leaves the company, you can see that that's going to be a big problem in the future. But it looks like only the trolls have signed up for this new verification system. So I, I don't know if he can make you know, that much money just on trolls alone or try to convince other people to subscribe to this new subscription service. So uh, if Twitter blows up or implodes under uh, Elon Musk's leadership, What's going to replace it? Is there anything that you see in the horizon at this moment that people could move towards where, yes, it can be toxic, uh, but it also is a place where many people meet to talk about important issues and pass along articles they're reading. Is there any social media that you think could potentially replace um, uh, Twitter? Well, the problem with that, Jazz, is there's a lot of different alternatives. And the problem is that people are going to kind of move here and there. There's counter social, there's Mastodon. And I've been trying these out and, and some are good, and but the, they just don't have the followers. And I think Elon Musk understands Twitter's role in just society right now. And he, so he's betting that no matter what, we're going to stay on Twitter. I don't think he realizes that people aren't going to pay for Twitter. Even the people that have the blue check mark, he said today that he's looking to remove that. Even advertisers he wants to pay for the blue check mark. So in the future, if you have a blue check mark, you're a paying Twitter subscriber. And so the all the the public figures that currently have that blue check mark, he wants them to pay as well. And I just don't see people paying for Twitter. It's kind of like the news. You know, people when, when online news came, they had a hard time making that shift to a revenue model like the New York Times to get subscriptions because people were so used to getting the news for free. Mm-hmm. And I think he's going to have that challenge with social media as well, which usually gets their money through ads. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. <laughs> and you raise a very good point. It's only been a week and I'm just fascinated as to how much uh, destruction and news he's already creating and, and half the workforce uh, gone as well. So it'll be very interesting as to what he accomplishes by the end of the month, that's for sure. Andy, thank you for your time, my friend. Anytime, Jazz. First of three projects to widen Highway 1 through the township of Langley between 216 and 264th Street began today. Transportation Minister Rob Fleming made the announcement at a morning news conference uh, in Langley. He said the first part of the project is the 19.5 million new Glover Road crossing that will increase the height clearance uh, over uh, the uh, highway. Completion of that uh, crossing is expected to be in the summer of 2024. I know a lot of folks who do listen to us every single day are... um, have to deal with the, of course, the congestion on Highway 1. And today's announcement also comes about a year, uh, well, a year ago now, after torrential rain fueled mudslides, debris flows, and flooding uh, all hammered critical infrastructure along uh, the corridors in southwestern uh, British Columbia. Some have said those permanent repairs to the Coahala, the Trans Canada, the Nicola Highways will cost about a billion dollars. So I thought today's announcement was a good time for us to catch up with the minister to get an idea of, of how um, rebuilding that part of southwest. Western BC is going as well. Rob Fleming is BC's Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure, and he joins us now. Minister, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Jazz. It's good to be with you again. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about um, uh, just uh, Highway 1 just for a second, because so much of our audience, um, uh, you know, navigates through Highway 1 to get into work every single day. Uh, the biggest, uh, probably part of today's announcement is the um, widening between 216th and 264th Street. How, when will you start construction there, and how long will it take? Yeah. So we're aiming to start as soon as we can, possibly by the end of this calendar year. And uh, it'll be 10 kilometers worth of widening. And it's certainly part of, as you said in your introduction, a a phased approach to widen Highway 1 all the way out to Chilliwack. 
And I think what's interesting too is that you mentioned the atmospheric river, and that's going to require some some new thinking because, of course, oh, several kilometers, I think about seven kilometers of Highway One was underwater uh, in the in the Sumas Prairie area, mm-hmm. and we've got to have our engineers working with those planning enhanced flood defenses um, in, in in Abbotsford. Uh, involved in making sure that the highway is complementary and not competing with the new flood management uh, infrastructure that is going to have to be built there. So uh, we we consulted on the, the next phase about 15 months ago and a year ago. We had the, the heaviest storm um, on record in 250 years. So we know that building back infrastructure better uh, in, in, in all of the areas that were damaged is is, is the smart way to go forward so that we're not doing this over and over again. And unfortunately, extreme weather events are going to be more frequent and they're with us. So it's about climate ad- adaptation and climate resiliency, and Highway 1 is part of that as well. So before we talk a little bit about uh, the interior, so this is going up to 264th. Uh, how long, is the process already begun about potentially widening all the way out to at least Abbotsford, or is that still years away? That we're going to sequence it, and uh, the intention is to keep widening uh, Highway One for a number of reasons. One is it's for Fraser Valley commuters who are stuck in traffic. Um, you know, the extra lane in each direction is going to be extremely helpful. But it's also about trying to shift uh, travel modes as well. So, you know, we we only have about two percent mode share for public transit in the Fraser Valley. This is about enabling uh, bus priority lanes uh, that will be part of this highway widening, mm-hmm. um, active transportation along the corridor as well. So the Glover Road uh, overpass today is going to have three meters each side for active transportation. That's everything from e-bikes to pedestrians connecting, in this case, with the Trinity Western uh, University campus. And uh, look, we want to uh, align our transportation investments with opening up uh, land for uh, industrial purposes. We have an uh, industrial land shortage, so the Gloucester uh, interchange is, is important for that, and, and also housing opportunities, affordable housing opportunities uh, to be uh, built uh, along these, alongside these trans- transportation investments. Mm-hmm. Now, last year with that atmospheric river, significant damage, to, as I was saying, to the Trans-Canada, Nicola Highways, and, and the Coquihalla. Give me an update on where we are in regards to some of those repairs and the conditions of those highways. Where are we in regards to the spend? Yeah, well, I think, I think most of your listeners who used the Coquihalla last Summer, uh, for example, will not really notice the difference between temporary repairs, which have been completed now, and we're going into the permanent repair phase, uh, because the highway is, is, is flowing again. It's it's, it's working. Uh, the connection is is solid. We're just going to have a regular battle with with winter and snowshed there, but the Coquihalla work has been incredible, and uh, and that highway has been open. Well, it was open 35 days after the storm events, uh, December 20th mm-hmm. last year. I was just on Highway 8 between Merritt and Spence's Bridge, and we celebrated the reconnection and, and the highway being open to public use about 51 weeks after the storms. That was probably the trickiest highway to repair. Uh, we had about 200 workers going flat out on that project, but seven kilometers of that highway literally disappeared into the Nicola River. So we have some very interesting uh, new engineering and uh resilient road building standards that are part of rebuilding that. And of course, a lot of First Nations communities living across that corridor, some of whom were kept from their homes for a long time, who had to have food and water flown in. And uh, it's been a very difficult year for all those involved living on the Highway 8 corridor. But 
what a milestone to celebrate yesterday. It was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the total cost of, as you say, Build Back Better, uh, repairing, uh, temporarily repairing um, those roadways and highways uh, during the atmospheric river and then, of course, a permanent fix? What's the total cost for all of that? Yeah, for Highways 1, Fraser Canyon, Highway 8, and the Coquihalla Highway 5, we spent about $250 million to date on the temporary repairs, getting those highways reopened. We expect the, the cost to be somewhere around $1 billion for all the permanent repairs uh, to be done. So um, it is a lot of money. Uh, we will have a partner with the federal government. These are eligible for disaster financial assistance, so up to 70% of the costs will be covered by the federal government. We've been involved every step of the way with them uh, about our engineering thinking and about how important it is to have a sort of a build back better approach that takes into account uh, mass precipitation events uh, like we experienced a year ago. And they agree entirely that the engineering standards for vulnerable infrastructure like this uh, in our province need to be built to a much higher standard. And and, and that's the approach we've taken on the Coquihalla and all the highways that we're uh, that were suspended and disrupted. Well, it has been a fascinating uh, following this story, and and uh, it uh, I did uh, drive uh, on the Coquihalla about uh, what six weeks ago, and it was just a wonderful condition. It speaks to the great Thanks. work that uh, folks are doing out there, and uh, I do want to appreciate uh, you making time for us today because it is such an important part. Uh, once you get out of the Lower Mainland, how vitally important transportation and, and those roadways are for many of our folks uh, listening in the interior. Thanks so much, Minister. Thanks so much for having me, Jess. Well, Daniel Sedin and Henrik Sedin say they're looking forward to their Hockey Hall of Fame weekend to celebrate their 17-season careers with friends and family and maybe embarrass fellow inductee and former Vancouver Canucks teammate Roberto Luongo when he plays defense in the Legends Classic game. The Sedins, Sedins and Luongo, who played with them as the Canucks' number one goalie for part, of eight seasons in Vancouver were elected June 28th for induction into the Hockey Hall of Fame in their first year of eligibility. So I guess they will be officially inducted this weekend, although it was announced on June 28th. Joining me now to talk a little bit about, about the uh, Sedins and uh, Roberto Luongo is Ryan Lee Hall, our technical producer and big time, uh, it says here sports enthusiast. I think fanatic is probably closer, Ryan. Fanatic is, is probably the right <laughs> word there. All sports. You pretty much wear a jersey every day when you come in. Very I do. Closer. I do. You know what? Soccer, NFL, yeah. CFL. Do you have a tie? Do I have a tie? Do, do you I own a tie? A tie? Do I do own, own a tie. Come on, guys. Okay. I went to broadcasting school. Of course I own you, a tie. You own a tie. Okay. I had to ask that. So your thoughts just, uh, you know, uh, watching Sedins and Luongo play all these years, what, what oh. kind of memories do they bring back? So these guys are, when I think of the Canucks, this is my era. Okay. This is my era growing up as a kid. As a kid, we always heard of, you know, people talk about the 94 run. People talk about Trevor Linden. They talk about Pavel Bure, Kirk McLean. And I get it. That's, you know, a different generation's nostalgia factor. Mm-hmm. But these are my guys right here. Daniel Sedin, Henrik Sedin, Roberto Luongo. I actually also do own all three of those jerseys, by the way. Daniel Sedin, <laughs> Henrik Sedin, and Roberto Luongo. Honestly, you can't say enough good things about all of them. You have the best goaltender in franchise history. I'm calling that right now. It's not Kirk McLean. I'm sorry. It is Roberto Luongo. Uh-huh. And you've got the two best players in franchise history ever. And the biggest thing about it here, Jazz, is that the Sedins played their entire careers in Vancouver and are going into the Hall of Fame that way. Yeah. Like we have, we've had other players that have played in Vancouver that have made it to the Hall of Fame. Pavel Bure, yeah. uh, I think Igor Larionov. There's some other players. Cam Neely. Yeah. There are other guys, but... 
these are our guys. That's the biggest difference. And, and I think that's a really good point you raise. If you look at other sports, look at basketball, the Brooklyn Nets, you got Kyrie Irving, uh, Kevin Durant. Like they're literally shopping they jump around. from team to team. It's like team. every season. Yeah, championship chasers. Yeah, you can't. There's no loyalty. There's no connection for the fans as, as much as it, it once was. What I also loved about the Sedins and Luongo as well is um, in an era where there's so much. Um, you know, people uh, so much, uh, so much of a spotlight on on a particular player or stars, which they were in a town like this. It's almost like a fishbowl, but no scandal, none, no bad none. news. You know what? The, again, the worst thing that I can think of is Roberto Luongo admitting that his contract sucks, that he can't be traded. That is the worst thing ever. The Twins are like again. You, you were saying that as well. They're what you want your kids to be like. Yeah, those are they are the model citizens there um i did kind of want to go back into the careers of daniel and henrik sedin and roberto luongo mm-hmm. and kind of go down memory lane here just to see um sort of how we got here so i did put this little package here together for you go for it daniel henrik. daniel to henrik back for daniel henrik to daniel let's it go he scores he scores how many times have we heard that within the last 20 or so years here in Vancouver? Here's Henrik Sedin up to Anson Carter who moves in on the left wing. Carter getting in deep, centers the puck. Daniel couldn't find it in his skates. Now he puts it to the crease. Henrik scores! 5-0. Wonder Twin powers activate the Canucks in a romp here at GM Place. This weekend, the festivities get underway at the Hockey Hall of Fame as Daniel and Henrik Sedin are set to be inducted on Monday, November the 14th. The only two players to ever play their entire NHL careers with the Vancouver Canucks to make it into the Hall. Now, for those of us of a certain vintage, you might remember that early on in their careers, things didn't always look like they were going to work out in the National Hockey League. The Sedins were drafted second and third overall in the first round of the 1999 NHL entry draft by then Canucks general manager Brian Burke, who was determined to leave that draft with both Sedin twins. Vancouver Canucks are very proud to select for Marshall Spink, Daniel, and Henrik Sedin. Within their first four NHL seasons, the twins were hardly putting up Hall of Fame numbers, scoring between 30 and 40 points each year. And questions, they were starting to be asked. Uh, I, I had a tough first year, Dan had a good one. He had a tough second year, I, I was better the second year. It's just, uh, and we, we knew we had things to work on for sure. So that's, there's no question. And we uh, we felt the pressure, uh, absolutely. So uh, it was it was tough coming, coming to the rink a lot of days, but we had people that believed in us in the dressing room and, and uh, above us in management, so that, that meant a lot. Former general manager and head coach, the late great Pat Quinn, once said it was the Sedin's perseverance that got them to where they are today. They didn't stop. A lot of players will stop. That's why they don't ever meet their expectations. How many first-rounders have we uh, dreamed about being great and all of a sudden they're nothing? Well, they do. They stop inside for whatever reasons. Either they're afraid to be good or maybe they're just afraid. And uh, the Sedins are not. They just kept plugging away. They became the, the franchise. Two Art Ross trophies as the league's top point getters. One Hart trophy as league MVP. And not one, not two, but three King Clancy Trophy Awards for exemplifying a leadership both on and off the ice. Over 2,000 NHL games played and over 2,000 points between them. The Sedins go down as arguably the greatest Canucks of all time. Bingo, bango, bongo, his name is Roberto Luongo. Bingo, bango, bongo, his name is Roberto Luongo. Bingo, bango, bongo, his name 
is Roberto Luongo. Shoutouts Tom Larshide for that. And oh boy, was I excited for this one. When Roberto Luongo was traded to the Vancouver Canucks in 2006 from the Florida Panthers, Canucks fans everywhere, including 12-year-old me, rejoiced for having finally found their franchise goaltender. Simmons after the puck. Smith shoots. Great save, Luongo. Brian Smith had the game's second goal on his stick, and Luongo miraculously snatched it away. Now, Luongo was lights out his first season in Vancouver, playing in 76 of 82 games and earning 47 wins. Ahead of the 2008-2009 season, Luongo was named captain of the Vancouver Canucks, becoming the first goaltender to serve as team captain of an NHL team since 1947. He was the team's safety net for over eight seasons in Vancouver, posting a total of 252 wins and, of course, that one Stanley Cup Finals appearance in 2011. Roberto Luongo, along with Daniel and Henrik Sedin, helped form one of the most, if not the most, exciting and, of course, the most successful era of Canucks hockey in Vancouver, and they deserve to be recognized as legends of the game. Forever Canucks, and now forever a part of hockey history. Welcome to the Hockey Hall of Fame. Don't you just get chills there, Jazz, listening <laughs> to you know John Shorthouse's legendary commentary, Tom Larshide. There's so much great just archival footage and audio here at CKNW, you know, being with the team for, for so long and just the Sedins and Luongo, they, oh, I, I can't say enough. I know. I know. I know. I guys. I didn't, uh, you know, I love the, the, the comment you made about the generation, like for you as a generation growing up watching the Canucks, it was Luongo, it was the Sedins. And I think back to, um, uh, you know, uh, you brought up the issue of uh, Pavel Bure, Lyndon, uh, Kirk McLean, and even, uh, and, and I, that, this is all in the 90s and followed it so closely. That was me in my probably 20s, but even earlier when you're watching Stan Smeal and Harold Snaps, it's those eras that, that sort of they just they pass on the baton, right? Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, and I, I, I think you're absolutely correct when it comes to Sedins and Luongo. Um, they were just um, you know just great great role models for youth in this city as well. <laughs> they did get a kick out of uh, Tom Larshide with his bingo bango bongo. His name is Roto Luongo, and then former classmate of mine, John Hort- Shorthouse. Oh, there you uh, go, Wonder Twins. Actually, yeah, yeah, there you go. Yes, we uh, he was in the radio program. I was in the journalism program. Great guy, uh, solid guy, and a fabulous, fabulous broadcaster. Just yeah. the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for that walk down memory lane, my friend. No problem. All right, that's Ryan Lee Hall, our technical producer and sports fanatic, not enthusiast. There you go. And congratulations to the Sedin Twins and Ruto Luongo. They'll be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Well, it's that time of the week, Thursday, 538, uh, and uh, time to check in with our good friend Stephen Chang to see what's available on our streaming services, whether that's Netflix, Amazon Prime, uh, Apple Plus, Disney Plus, uh, so many streaming services out there, lots to watch, lots of clutter, so our good friend Stephen Chang is going to join us now to talk a little bit about some of the things that are available out this week. Uh, it's time for that segment, Streaming with Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Jazz. Wakanda forever. <laughs> Wakanda forever. How excited are you, by the way, for oh. uh, Black Panther? Oh, absolutely excited. I, I can't wait to bring a box of Kleenex with me to the movie theater this weekend and just sob it out the entire time. 
<laughs> Why? Just because of uh, uh, the the lead of the original uh, has passed, I that, guess. That's more exactly than anything. why. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's going to be an emotional movie for sure. Yeah, and I've, I've been hearing good things about it so far, so it, uh, it looks fabulous, uh, and I will be going as well. Uh, and but let's talk a little bit about what's available on the smaller screen now with our streaming services. What do you got for us this week? Yes, of course, Jazz. Well, today uh, it's going to be mostly Netflix-based um, programs, okay. and I'm going to start you off with uh, a little something that's a limited series that's on Netflix right now. It just came out uh, yesterday. Mm-hmm. First of all, Jazz, two questions: Do you like FIFA and soccer? I like soccer. No one likes FIFA. Do you like? <laughs> well, Jazz, do you like corruption? I, I love uh, corruption being uncovered. Yes. <laughs> well, here, Jazz is a limited series uh, about FIFA, and it just highlights the dark and dirty side of their organization. Mm. This is FIFA Uncovered. Being a member of FIFA is like being in the secret garden. There's an unspoken code. You can do whatever you want. They wanted to be a force for good. The lines between right and wrong blurred. Wire fraud, money laundering, racketeering, tax evasion. FIFA became a criminal organization. Wow. So, it, so they do they dig into how Qatar got the World Cup and uh, and all of that? Well, that and uh, many other different instances in the past throughout history of FIFA, where they've dealt with corruption, uh, political gain, you know, controversies. There's so much that goes on behind it. Uh, personally, I'm not a huge sports guy, so I don't know that much about FIFA, but what gets me hooked about this series is just knowing more about the organization, like what's the big deal behind the World Cup? How does uh, how do cities get picked for the World Cup and what kind of processes does the uh, does the president go through to make these events happen every uh, four years or so? Yeah, there was something in the news uh, earlier this week um, uh, from uh, Seth Blatter, the former head of FIFA, saying that they were, he were regrets that uh, they shouldn't have given Qatar the 2022 World Cup. So it's quite interesting. And you're right, there's power struggles. There's It's not, it's just, it's not just uh, individuals. It's actually countries, corruption issues. It's kind of like the Olympics. So I yeah. think it's very, uh, very relevant for the moment as the World Cup uh, begins very, very uh, soon. We'll be following that from our show. But I think that's a great series. I will definitely watch that one. What else you got? Well, for sure, Jazz. And uh, for people who don't want something as serious as or, or as heavy to deal with for the weekend, uh-huh. uh, you know what? Let me let's 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 spring you over here to the happier side. And uh, you know what? Listen, let me introduce you to my friend, Lindsay Lohan. You remember Lindsay Lohan. <laughs> you love Lindsay Lohan, Jazz. Yeah. Well, she certainly used to be front page news, or not at least on front page on the entertainment section. She was known for not only being a good actor in her early days, but then a lot of news uh, created for all the wrong reasons as well. Well, Jazz, I am very happy to report that she is indeed back in the acting business. She's back after everything she's gone through, after all the struggle, Mm -hmm. all the recovery that she needs. She is back for her very first role since uh, going through all of that that she's been through in the past. And it's a Christmas movie, Jazz. This is uh, Falling for Christmas. Sheriff, could you please tell her to let me out of here? First, we need to figure out who you are. What do you mean, who I am? My name is... My name is... So what are we supposed to do with her? I have a place. Does it have room service? Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell rock. And I know, Jazz, it's too soon for Christmas, but I don't care. 
Oh, you know, the folks who, uh, we were talking about Christmas in my house. My son loves it. It's a favorite part of the year for him. And so we're already talking about getting ready for Christmas and all that. So I can see this being popular real fast. I didn't expect to be talking about Lindsay Lohan uh, Christmas 2022 with a movie coming out on Netflix. But that's that's great. Good for her if she's gotten over her challenges when it comes to addictions and some of the legal challenges that she had. But uh, she was always a really good actor. And uh, hopefully she gets her life organized and uh, wish her well on this. And any Christmas movie, I, you know, everybody watches it and it's great to get the family together, so no complaints from me on that issue. Uh, now, you have another um, show on Netflix as well that's making its debut? Yeah, Jess, so now if you really want to have fun with yourself <laughs> and the family, uh, there's a hot game show that's I've been, I've been watching this on Netflix for a while now, and i got to say, it's such an entertaining thing to see. So, it's a game show where there are teams of three navigating through an obstacle course to get to the other side. But here's the catch. You can't fall on the floor because the floor is lava. It's the hottest game show in history. Three teams dare to make it to the exit without falling in. The team with the most points wins $10,000. Hello. Make it from the entrance to the exit and your team earns a point. Fall in and you're out. I would love to be in the pitch meeting for that one to Netflix. So we got this floor, and it's lava. But it's not really lava, but it's lava. So it's just orange water, Jazz. Just no orange. one's going to die in this show, but so, that's fine. So is it like, you see some of these shows on, on broadcast uh, television. So is it is it a big obstacle course, or is it just one of those things where, you, where you've got to navigate through an island or something like that? So it's kind of like each, there's like different islands in the room. So you're just this kind of like pretty big room mm-hmm. um each room has like a different theme like it's like a garage or a playroom and there are like th- these different platforms or uh ways to get to the platforms that you got to jump through so it's a lot of physical effort to put in and then it's also very slippery because the orange liquid uh that's quote unquote the lava is just slipping on it, it goes on all of these surfaces so it gets a little slippery mm-hmm. and it requires a lot of like team effort between the three people who are involved in each team to kind of get to the other side so it's it's such a fun thing to watch it's kind of like american ninja warrior but for less i don't know it's a different way of seeing that kind of show. I so. didn't even know Netflix had game shows, so um, you've already uh, you've already uh, showed me something different already on 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 that side. So well, maybe I'll check it out for sure. So the, what you're recommending this week on Netflix, of course, is FIFA Uncovered, a four part uh, documentary series, Netflix movie which is uh, Falling for Christmas with Lindsay Lohan, who That's makes right. appearance for the first time in ten years, and a game show on Netflix called The Floor Is Lava. I love that title, The Floor Is Lava. Stephen, thank you so much. Thank you, Jazz. What kind of forever <laughs> that's our good friend Stephen Chang he of course has a regular segment here at 5.30 on Thursday called Streaming with Stephen so check it out there's FIFA we're talking about Lindsay, Lindsay Lohan's Christmas movie Falling for Christmas and a new game well third season for this game show The Floor is Lava For listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.